Hi. Hello. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you, but I can't see you. Well, I probably am better for not seeing anyone. Well, um, I, have a voice, I have a face for radio. <laughs> it's okay. You know what? I got makeup on. I actually, you know, brushed my hair. So I'm 10 times better than I was yesterday. Well, I actually was uh, panicking, like, where's my makeup? And I never could find it. So you're getting the raw me. Oh, no. Well, I wouldn't like to see you. It, it helps me to be able to kind of play off. But if you don't. Oh, sure. Okay. I'm in no hurry to see. Is it coming on yet? Not yet. It worked on the test. I had the test. It came on. Okay. So I did a test just to make sure. Do you see the video? Little. I, I see you. I see you just fine. Are you on what kind of, are you on a computer? Yes. All right. Is it a Windows computer? Yes. Okay. At the bottom left, do you see stop video? Start video. Yeah. You want to do start video. Yeah, here we go. <laughs> you walked me into it. I know. Well, that's part of my actual job job. I do like technology help desk. Oh, goodness gracious. You're that's way ahead of the curve than I am. I only edit because I have to. Well, but it's fun. It is fun. You know, actually in editing, I think it comes more together just as much as directing. Editing is half the process because I've went through editors. I bet you one every six months. And finally... I just said, I'm going to have to do this myself. And I learned it from the ground up. You know what you want. That's it. Nobody knows it better than you do. Nobody knows what you want better than you do. I don't know how. There are lots of people that as soon as they get done shooting, they hand it all over to an editor. I don't know how they do that. I just don't. I tried it many times. Well, if they're happy with the result, maybe they're lucky. Whatever works for them. I know, but I found in my life that nobody else knows exactly what I want. But sometimes I don't know exactly what I want. Oh, me either. There's many times I'll be in editing and I'll find something that actually works better than I ever imagined it would because of a shot that just came out so much better. So. Yeah. And then you figure out how to edit it and you're like, oh, that's so cool. That's so much better than it would have been. Well, I'm always amazed when we do something. It's like, wow. And then I realized, wait a minute, I wrote that line because the guy sells it so well. I thought he said it. That's a brilliant line. Wait a minute. I wrote that line. I know. And I, I watched um, GC. Tell me the name of it again. The recent one. GSC. I watched that. Oh, the GSC. Okay. That was a kind of experimental video we did. We said, okay, you know what? We got all the sets set up from Bunker of Blood. Why don't we do something else? And I said, you know what would be fun is to take off on the old government getting ready video. That's how that all came about. So let's do a video that tells them what to do when you run into a zombie apocalypse. And then it just kind of, we just did one, did another one, did another one. So it was, that was a fun one. It was, it was a unique. I loved it. And I got a lot of um, comments about things I liked. So we'll get to that in a minute. Let's, um, sure. I want to start by introducing you and myself, and then we'll get into some stuff. Sure. So. Tell me where you want to go and we'll go there. Yep. All right. My name is Lola Laracy, and I am here with George Benella, um, producer, writer, director, editor. Tell me about yourself and tell me what other titles you have. Wow, it sounds so good when you put it that way. I always just think of myself as a director only, and the, the other stuff came along out of necessity. Yep. But mostly um, I started out in uh, commercials, and then from commercials I moved into feature films, which most people, of course, move into shorts and everything like that. But I jumped directly into features after that. And when I say jump directly in, it took like 20 years to get there, but I did go into features 
and uh, been doing features ever since. We did several uh, motion pictures that got worldwide distribution. And then we got into streaming television when it first really got hot. We went into Roku. We were some of the first people that went into Roku. And uh, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you how early we were into Roku. When Roku first opened up the Roku channel, their Christmas lineup, they had a Roku Christmas lineup. Their entire Christmas lineup was our shows. They took, used only our shows their first year in their Christmas lineup on the, on the actual Roku channel. So you ought to claim that you helped launch Roku. No, we did help launch Roku. <laughs> and so they, even, they even send a Christmas card. No, nothing. But, you know, and, you know, of course, they've gotten so big now. Now, of course, we still have, I think, um, currently we have 22 channels on Roku. So they still, we are still with them and we still love them. We get along great with them and stuff. But we have been there since the very beginning. It has changed a lot. I mean, for independence especially. Um, it used to be that every single big company like Netflix, and we had a deal going with Netflix for, um, that we were getting ready to go on to Netflix. And um, they changed the entire deal right at the last moment. That was right at the very end when they, right before they stopped taking most any independent feature. And um, we had a deal with them. And right at the end, they said, uh, or at least the distributor said that Netflix has decided that they're not going to give you any royalties past the first initial $1,000. And that, and I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And then they can just play it in, a, um, in perpetuity. And I was like, what do you mean? So they get to have the rights forever? And he said, yeah. Now, of course, like I said, this is the distributor telling me this. And so needless to say, I said no. Yeah. And they came back with, wait a minute, this is Netflix. You don't want Netflix? And I didn't. And we didn't. So that was just like I said, that was a a very interesting situation to be in. I'm sure maybe part of that may have been the distributor making his own deal, but that was the deal we, we had gone in. We were going to get, at one time, I think, and again, this is to the distributor, we were going to get 85 cents per a DVD sale, and then we were going to get so many pennies per play on Netflix. And now all of that has changed, of course. Now you get a percentage or whatever. And, um, but it was interesting. Like I said, we've been there since the very beginning of that. I'm old enough to have went through the VHS revolution, then the DVD revolution. And is there uh, disc? I never got a laser disc player. I was like, I couldn't afford it. So well, you know, I, and uh, I remember when a VHS player cost twelve hundred dollars. I remember that. I remember when they were too yeah. expensive, and I was like, no. And then they you know, came down to like four hundred dollars. Oh yeah, and I remember everybody ran out and got a. a a broadcast quality camera you had to rent them back then because it was so expensive and they all decided to make movies there was a movie came out oh what was the name of it pieces way back in the vhs days and pieces came out it was a low budget shot on video movie and it made money when that happened everybody rushed out got them a rented a camcorder and started making movies that's kind of how we moved into it uh, of course just like it did a couple of years ago, the bubble finally burst. There were so many people shooting videos and dumping them on there. The oh, the quality just got just really awful. But to me, there was a certain charm to those movies. You know, the old slasher, slice and dice, Z grade, no budget movies. There was a certain charm to those. It's kind of million. And the only like reason we cult type. eventually worked in streaming television was distribution got so tricky and, and it really got tricky it got to where and i'm sure our other independent producers and directors out there will appreciate this it got to where the lion's share of anything being made was being kept on 
charges. Like um, we had the last distribution deal we made, which is what the reason I went into streaming television. We got this nice check in the mail. I won't tell you how much it was for. I've told the story a thousand times, but it says your royalty check for this quarter is enclosed for Zombie Planet. Okay. So that was like, wow, you know, this is a lot of money. And it said, see enclosed deductions. The deductions were like eight pages thick. And so I started going through, the, including charging us $1,000 for the artwork, which they used our artwork, <laughs> which I loved. I actually asked him, I said, I said, you used our artwork. He said, well, we had to digitize it like oh. for $1,000. Yeah, I know. I loved it. But that, if that, at that moment, when I looked at the end, at the very end of it, the thing, it said, see enclosed check for minus $250. You owed money? Yes, we owed him two hundred and fifty dollars. Ridiculous! Of course, I never, gave, I never gave him a dime. Oh, but the, the thing was that it said that just blew my mind. I would be so mad. See, you seem to have a good sense of humor about it. I would have been livid. I do now. Okay, do you now. now. You did it then, though, right? No, no, then I was like, "What?" I mean, the deductions were ridiculous. They had a catering charge on there, and um, they've never been, they never stepped foot on our set. And I was like, "How are you charging us a catering charge?" And he said, oh, that must be a mistake. I'll check into that. That's a racket. I'm sorry. That's no, yes. a racket. It really was. And uh, and at that point, I looked at it and I said, you know what? We've got to get into some other distribution side of this. And that was when we started looking. We started hearing about streaming television. Yeah. And I mean, really, when we got into streaming television, we were calling people saying, hey, how do we do this? How do we do that? And they didn't know. They said, we don't, you know, I don't know what to tell you. We actually talked to, at one time, we talked to Roku and we asked him about some, some technical issue we had. And the guy said, well, you know, I really don't know. We'll have to, and this was Roku. And oh they had to God. get back. That was <laughs> so, his job. Yeah, but it was, it was interesting, especially seeing our programs on there for their Christmas. And uh, we have a channel that was picked to be by the Roku guide as the best Western channel to have on all of Roku. Our Halloween channel was picked to be the best Halloween channel of all to have on Roku. And uh, so we're very proud that we've at least tried to keep our quality good. And when I say quality, again, I'm, I'm a, always going to be a low budget independent guy. But I, to me, it's like, it's more about if you have fun watching it, that's what it's about. Yeah. And it's about a good story. And people have to have fun making it, which I can tell from what I watch, they have fun making it. Oh, we have, we have a good time. We really do. Now, of course, there, a lot of people tell you I'm not the same person away from the set as I am on the set. Uh, recently, we shot an episode of Draw Western Theater, and one of our actors, John Rice, um, I usually set to the table with him. I play a character called Cowboy. Well, I've been trying to get behind the camera because I'm not an actor in front of the camera. I, I'm a behind. I only got in front of the camera to get them all comfortable with the concept. Okay. Um, so once they got comfortable, I stepped back and uh, Bud stepped <laughs> in. Uh, is that Bud? Is that Bud? Um, Bud Robinson. The funny thing is, my dog, the male name is Buddy. <laughs> oh, he heard Bud. Uh, he probably awesome. heard his name. They're That's awesome. Yeah. But Bud stepped in, and, he, and then John told me, he said, You know what? He said, You're a lot nicer guy when you're sitting at the table than you are when you're directing. It's like, <laughs> I'm not mean. It's just, I know we got to get things done. And you understand that, of course. You got you to gotta get business done. That's you it. You got, when you walk on that set, you've got seven pages to do for the day. You've got to wrangle 15 people in crew and you got to wrangle 20 actors on set. Plus you got food, you got effects, you got, that's all got to happen in a certain period of time. And so that makes with, at least with me, that turns me into, gives me a captain of the ship sort of mentality. And it's like, come on guys, let's go, let's go. 
not to say we don't have fun. We do have fun, but we get the job done. That is one thing that, uh, that our reputation has become, which is a wonderful reputation to have, is that we do get the job done. We bring it in on time, under budget, and we get it done. We don't start a movie and fold it. We Once we start a movie, we finish it. That's good. That's a good work ethic. We try. All right. Tell me about ZP Productions and ZP International. We started ZP International. ZP actually stands for Zombie Planet. Zombie Planet was the first movie we did. Um, it's interesting story behind that because it's hard to believe it's been 20 years ago when we, when we started that. But when we first came to Kentucky, we had come to Kentucky, from, we lived out of the country. We were living in Hawaii. We only thought we were gonna be here for three months. And um, I shot mostly freelance everywhere. Uh, I tried to start up a production company in Hawaii, but Hawaii was at that time so closed off, which most places were. It was like, if you didn't work for this guy and do it with this production company, then you basically didn't work. If you didn't go through this casting agent, and I just happened to get a really good agent. And the agent told me, here's what you should do. You should try this in an area where it's not so closed off, where you can actually bring people in, train them, show them what you want done. Because at this point, I've been doing commercials for years. And so when we came here, we were only supposed to be here for three months. And I put an ad out in the paper. And I said, I'm interested in making independent films. Anybody else in the area interested in making? David Workman contacted me. And David Workman had been thinking about doing this for a long time too. He actually runs a dental laboratory, but he always thought he would like to try, you know, cause he's always playing with prosthetics and molds and things like that. He always thought he would try to like to try to make an independent feature. So luckily I got the right guy. Dave Workman said, well, let's try it. And between him and I, we started doing this. Uh, the funny part was though, that I was called to a meeting with this guy. They said, okay, you've got to talk to this one guy. He's at the University of Kentucky. So you got to talk to him. So I said, oh, okay. So I went and met him at a lunch thing. And it was this young guy. And he's probably, you know, 10, 15 years younger than me at least. And he says, okay, uh, unless you use this guy as a cameraman, this guy as a sound man, this guy doing this, this guy doing that, you can't make movies here. And I said, well, well sure I can. And he said, no, no. He said, if you don't use these people, you will never make a movie in the state of Kentucky. And I said, I'm not going to use your people. Because the main thing I want to do is I want to train people how to do this. I want to train a sound man. I want to train a clapperboard guy. And he said, well, you can't do that. You have to use these people. I said, well, we're, we're not going to do it. And I said, I guess this lunch is over. And the blood ran out of his face. And he got up. And I'll never forget. He just, he, he, he went, uh, uh, and I said, no, I said, we're done. I said, if you tell me we can't work together, we can't work together. He left. He went straight to the newspaper. A week later, this article comes out saying there's a new guy in town trying to scam people out of their money by saying he's going to make oh i know it's a terrible article went on and on and on um that he'll never get a movie made we made zombie planet another article came out same guy saying well th that was just a fluke they'll never make another one we made dance with the vampire same guy another article said they'll never make another one after our fourth movie he kind of just quietly went away so never let anybody tell you you can't do it because we did it when they told us we couldn't the, the year that we started here, now everybody now has camcorders or not camcorders, everybody has digital and, and everybody's shooting now. But 20 years ago, there were only, at that time that I know of, there were only two independent features made in the state of Kentucky. 
three years later, after we started Zombie Planet, there were 36 independent movies made three years later. And, uh, and I mean, at that point, every set in the state had somebody that had been on our set. If you worked on our set, you went on to other people's set. They went on and made other movies. So it kind of just spread. I got a call from Wisconsin. Uh, the Film Commission in Wisconsin called me and said, we don't know what you're doing, but would you like to come do it here? <laughs> so they tried to get me to come up there and kickstart their film community. And, um, and then we were fortunate enough, we ran into, there was a, a Ken Daniels, Ken and Myra Daniels, they did a festival here called Fright Night. And the Fright Night Film Festival was one of the first ones that was really popular. It was so much fun to go to. It was back in the time where you would go sit at the bar afterwards with John Dugan from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, wonderful guy, um, Gunnar Hansen. Uh, gosh, I can't tell you how many different people we sat. We sat at a table one night with almost the entire cast of Revenge of the Nerds. You know, they were all they were all getting ready to go on a plane, so we're all sitting there drinking with them. And um, Heather Lankenkamp, she was uh, Linda Blair. You could actually sit with all these people and have fun. That was back in the day before everybody had handlers. But Ken uh, awarded me Filmmaker of the Year. Right up, that was the first Filmmaker of the Year award given out in the state of Kentucky, 2010, and I won it. Or 2008, I'm correct. Because two years later, I won Filmmaker of the Year at Darkwoods Film Festival in 2010. Uh, that's Cherokee Hall's film festival. So I, I had a couple of those things right there really kick-started us and got us in nationwide attention. And after winning Filmmaker of the Year, I got a couple of people contacting me about distribution. Hey, who's handling Zombie Planet? Who's handling Dance with the Vampire? Who's handling Edison Death Machine? And we got contracts on all of them. And all of them went out and they hit stores. So we, we did we did good with them. We um, and I've, every movie we've made, I've been very proud of, and every movie we've made has aged me five years. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I love them. I love them. So, long story short, we got started when they said we couldn't do it, and we did it anyway. Did you ever do like um, the circuit, what they call that, you know, where you go to different film festivals and stuff? Did you ever do that? No, no, never did. And uh, and and we had calls to do that. We had, uh, people offer us to come to different film festivals. And there is a, a, a definite a plus to that, but I've never found anybody that I, that I have dealt with personally that did that and got a big worldwide distribution deal out of it. They, they, a, a lot of people got small distribution deals yeah. and, uh, and there's not a doggone thing wrong with that. Distribution is distribution. And so um, I just never really got into that because I was more busy. And, I, and a lot of our guys love going to the conventions and I love Fright Night. I love uh, Comic-Con. I love Conuga um, uh, was a blast for a couple of years. And then some people kind of changed it and it just kind of fell apart. But, and I hear they're getting back. But um, I loved going to those. When it was the same thing, when you could go out and you could go room to room and party with people and network and have a great time. And a lot of that has changed too. Of course, with COVID, I, can, I don't know how it's going to be. So, um, but no, I never really hit the festival route. As a matter of fact, we even had a festival here. We did one called the World Independent Film Expo. Uh, me and Anthony Hudson did that one. And we got uh, people from 72 different countries that put in films. And we just had a wonderful time doing that. But it's just, uh, um, I, I think I've maybe just kind of gotten away from that. It's a way to network. I mean, it is I, a way to network. sure. When I go, I just, hand my business cards out to people. I've never tried to like get a table or anything because that's expensive. It, it, can, it can be, but also it can be, it can be fun to have a table. 
And a lot of shows will give you one just to get you exposure. Um, you know, I, I would recommend, I hear Fright Night's going to launch again this year. Go to Fright Night because I, I talked to Ken and Ken said, he said, we're going back to the beginning. We're going to get it back like it used to be, taking it back to the original hotel. So he said, we're going to get it back to the old days where we can go and have a beer at the bar afterwards and talk shop because, you know, we're independent filmmakers. I'm not, I'm not promoting drinking, but I'm saying there are more deals done over a beer than there ever will be done over, you know. I'm not promoting drinking. Horrible <laughs> habit. That's why, that's why I always have my silver cup with me. But, um, but you know, just I've networked more with people having a good time. Yeah. Um, one of the best people I ran into one night was almost started out in a bad situation because he said something to me and, and I smarted off to him. And then we just hit it right off. Johnny Fairplay. You know Johnny Fairplay? Oh, Survivor. The guy, bless his heart, he plays this character, this hated character on Survivor. Well, people think that's who he really is. And I'm walking down and we had a little tete-a-tete and he walked his way, I went my way. And I heard some guy yell out at him, hey, Johnny Fairplay, F you. And I could just see this hurt this guy's feelings. I know. And everybody he runs into treats him like that because he's the ultimate villain. Uh-huh. And so we, I just said, yeah, I said, that must be rough like that all the time. He said, yeah, he said, but it's my character. And he said, so I understand it. So him and I hit it off. And the thing is, though, we went and we just, we went into a bar and there's me and Johnny Fairplay, John Dugan the same way. And we would just basically almost hold court in that bar. People would just come by the table and we would talk to them and they would talk to us. Um, I met Ari Lehman that way. And Ari's a wonderful guy. I had John, Ari, um, Sonny Burnett, uh, several people that, that are really iconic in this industry come out and do movies with us. And I met them through like Ken and other people. So the networking definitely is worth it. Mm-hmm. And it's fun. You know, like if you're at a point where you're a little down because your film got shut down or whatever, you know, it's nice to just go and hang out and where people know your name. And, oh, absolutely. And just absolutely. have fun. And, you know, do you, I do like you make it to Comic-Con? I do Dragon Con. That's what I've done. I used to go oh. every year Yeah, in Atlanta. I used to go every year starting in 2004. Um, starting in 2018, I had some difficulties. And so I wasn't able to go. But um, it was online this That's year. Huh? Well. I think I froze. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, you did. You did. Okay. What were you saying? Were you saying something? Oh, no, I missed what you were saying about Dragon Con. That's one I haven't gone to yet, and it is the granddaddy. No, it's changed a lot. When I, I started going in 2004, and it was two hotels. When it started in 1986 or 87, it was one hotel. And they had a quote from Ray Bradbury looking up at the um, Hyatt, which was the original hotel, and he said, this is science fiction. And that was a quote because the hotel is just so cool looking. So it originally started in the Hyatt, downtown Atlanta. Then it expanded to the Marriott. And that, I could handle that pretty well. You just go back and forth between the two. Then it expanded to the Hilton, which was another block down. Then it went over to Sheraton and the Westin. So it's five hotels and they moved the vendor's room to a whole huge building of its own. So now it's, it's a little daunting. I'm like, like when I think about what I'm going to do, I'm like, (laughs) 
And that's not the computer freezing. That's me freezing. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, it, I, you reminded me of a story when you said that about uh, Ray Bradbury, uh -huh. and it has to do with Dragon Con. Oh. We uh, we did a movie called, um, of course, Zombie Zombie Planet, mm -hmm. and I get this letter from uh, this guy saying um, it has come to our attention. This is about 2008. Okay. It has come to our attention that your movie, Zombie Planet, is the same story as our movie, um, uh, the, the last one that uh, Romero did. Is that Day of the Dead? Land of the Dead? I think it was Day of the Dead. Okay. Um, but anyway, he said it's very similar to our movie. So we're, we're demanding all of your DVDs be taken off the shelf and that any further con uh, any kind of release that no royalties made or we want or we'll sue you um, and you have so many days to and I was like what really so it was George Romero's legal team that was threatening to sue us Come on. so I contacted them and I said um, when did you guys uh, copyright day of the dead and he said uh, our writers guild copyright is 2008 and I said, our Writers Guild copyright is 2002, so we're going to sue you. That's you, savvy. Because you used our story. They exactly. did. It's very similar to our story. The last Romero film, the zombie movie, is almost identical to our movie in a lot of ways. Uh -huh. So anyway, I contact him, and I never hear back from him again. Mm -hmm. Todd, Todd Burroughs is in Atlanta at Dragon Con. Who does he see? George Romero. George Romero sees Todd. He's wearing an Edison Death Machine shirt. And George Romero comes up to him and says, are you the guys that did that zombie planet and Edison Death Machine? Todd says, yes. He says, well, you know, I've heard good things about your movie. Could you send me a copy of that? So we send George Romero five copies up there. And he, he helped us out with some uh, things on distribution and things like that. I get a quote. comes. He said, I'm sending you a quote. Over my facts, my, you know, my thing comes in and says, this movie is funky and smart. Anybody interested in the genre should definitely check this out. George Romero. And then 15 minutes later, I get this legal thing that says, you can use this quote in any way, shape, or form in perpetuity. And that was his, it was his way of making it up to us. For that little thing. So that's the kind of people you meet in this industry. I just thought that was wonderful him to do that. And I've noticed that the actual creative people are a lot nicer than, I'm not trying to knock, you know, financial or legal people, but they, Oftentimes I see they don't coordinate with the talent. Oh, absolutely. And, and they do stuff that the talent has no idea about, which is, you know, that would piss me off. I mean, luckily, you know, I decided not to go with the legal team or anything, you know, so I'm in. Oh, there you go. You know, stay, stay your own legal team as long as you can. Of course, I always do tell people, though, when they are signing a distribution yeah. to get it checked out by a lawyer. You know, Sunny Boo is a wonderful resource to get contracts and things that are independent needs without paying a lawyer. But I, and I also always tell the story, I knocked us out of several tens of thousands of dollars in a contract by missing one word. And oh, Lord, do you remember what was it? Net, the difference between net and gross. And see, that's important. That's a oh, well, difference. 21 pages of this contract. So 21 pages right then, I'm leery, and I'm going through every word of this contract. One time buried in about page 17, the two words were inverted. And those two words being inverted on that one paragraph, on that one page, knocked us out of tens of thousands of dollars. And 
And so I always tell people, if you are going to sign a contract, even if you're independent, yeah. spend $250, $300 to have a lawyer look over that contract before you sign it. Um, I met um, Lloyd Kaufman. Have you ever met Lloyd Kaufman? Wonderful guy. Wonderful guy. We, I met him in Hollywood. And he says, walk with me. Let's go have lunch. So I walked with Lloyd because he, he, he had seen Santa Claus versus the zombies. Oh. And he comes up to me and he says, Santa Claus versus the zombies is a trauma movie. We want Santa Claus versus zombies to be a trauma title. I'm like, great. Walk with me, talk with me, let's go have lunch. So we're walking through the middle wall and everybody knows Lloyd. About every five feet, somebody stops him and says, hi, Lloyd, how are you? Eric Roberts stopped him. And then, then uh, Corey Feldman stopped him. And, Those and, people uh, are. Yeah, and I'm standing there, you know, I'm walking with Lloyd. So we get in there and he, he buys me lunch and we uh, eat and stuff. He said, listen, he said, I, I want your movie. He said, uh, I just want you to know you're not going to make a dime. He said, you're not going to make a penny off this movie, but it's going to be a trauma film. And being a trauma film means it's going to be in every single store. And as a, a director, producer at that time, I thought, you know, there's an advantage to having that. Even though we're not going to make any money on it, if we are a trauma film, that gets us in a lot more bigger, bigger stores. So I said, uh, you know what, let's talk about this. He said, okay, my man, Matt, will contact you. And he said, and give you all the details. And I'm not knocking him. Like I said, I love Lloyd. But when we got the offer, it was true. We weren't going to make any money. But we also weren't ever going to own our movie again, ever. And so uh, that's that's what kind of knocked that deal out. But I do always appreciate that Lloyd was honest, right up front, said, you're not going to make any money off this, but you'll be a trauma <laughs> So you've got to be careful when you're going to sign it. If you're going to sign it and you're going to make a deal, what are you willing to give up to make that deal? In this case, I'm, you know, I may never make a sequel to Santa Claus versus Zombies. Never, ever. It's been eight, ten years now since we made that movie. But I wanted the option to be able to make that sequel. In signing the contract that I got from Troma, it gave them a 20-year option. And in the, the characters 20 years, and everything, like they would own the characters? They option the characters, the storyline, the merchandising everything for 20 years yeah. and um but like i said to certain people that would have been I, and looking back i maybe still should have done it but i wanted the option to be able to go ahead and make a sequel if i wanted to and we're actually still talking about a sequel we're talking about sequels to two of our movies we're talking about doing a sequel to edison death machine and talking about doing a sequel to um santa claus versus zombies there's been talk about doing a sequel to zombie planet but goodness gracious the first zombie planet wore me out so. I bet. We had, cast, we had a cast of 300 in that movie. So. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. Now, how do you go about casting and, and film producing and everything? Tell me about that process. Well, in the very beginning, we start. We went through just like everybody else does. We went through headshots. We brought people in, talked to them. And, um, and, I, and again, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I am very proud to say that most of the people that have worked with us have went on and worked with a lot of other people hmm. because they learn how to act on a set. And... Uh, I had a producer out of Hollywood tell me one time, he said, when we come to Kentucky, he said, if they say they worked with you guys, he said, we hire them on. Um, shoot, when they did a uh, Seabiscuit here, the, there was one point on the, uh, when they're all standing on the rail, I could pick out five or six of our actors around the rail and in our costumes, we dressed them too. And so, um, but they know how to act. They know how to carry themselves on set. We may be a small set. We may be low budget, but we do it just exactly the way they do it, you know, and, uh, we have discipline, we do this that way, the same way they do, just on a smaller scale. But when we started first casting, we just tried to find, it was more important to me that a person would come on set and wanna be there, yeah. wanna, wanna be on time, wanna know their lines, wanna be part of the team. Be present. 
Yes, absolutely. And and see something really good built. See something, see some magic happen. Like Billy Blackwell says, see the magic happen. That's what we want to see. Now we've had many people, and this has happened more times than I can count, that would say, I've always wanted to make a movie. I always want to make a movie. And the first time they're on a set for 12 hours or 16 hour a day, you never see them again. <laughs> just never, they never come back. We had one girl, bless her heart, somebody recommended her for a lead role in one of our movies. And she contacted me and she said, I want to be in your movie. And they sent me a headshot, beautiful young girl. And I said, okay, well, um, and we started talking and she said, well, how long is this going to take? And I said, well, we're probably looking about three to four months. She said, three to four months. She said, a movie's only two hours long. How could it take three to four months? <laughs> I kid you not. She thought that you came in, you shot it for two hours and your movie was done. And I was like, well, no, no, we have to have you back for three to four months. Oh, no, I can't do that. I can come in for a couple hours. I'm like, okie dokie. So yeah, there's, lot, there's lots of stories of those too. Yeah, you know, that's just naivety, I guess. Oh, you know, as, as independent filmmakers, I'm sure you've got a lot too. I've got a lot of great stories, things like that. Somebody was showing me a generator the other day. said, this is a really quiet generator. And he told me it costs like about $2,500. And I said, you know, the last time we bought a generator, we bought a Honda generator. I think we paid $1,000 for it. First day on the set, guy comes walking by me and he's just really walking fast. And I was like, I wonder what that's about. As he walks by me, he says, generator's on fire and just kept walking. And I thought, what? And turn around, I could see the big bellowing smoke. And we ran up there, sure enough, generator's on fire. He had, he had tried to fill it up while it was running, had tilted it sideways. And when it caught on fire, he just left and we never saw him again. <laughs> generator's on fire. Who so, was he a maintenance person? Who was he again? He, he was one of our grips. And, uh, but he just, that, that, at least he knew how to exit. Generator's on fire. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess at least he told you. He did tell us. Made for a nice fire. We didn't get it on camera, though. Oh, yeah, because you could have used it for a shock yeah, later. Yeah. We were in, um, and, and again, this is in the very beginning when there wasn't any independent movies or not many independent movies being made in the state of Kentucky. We got access to a place called Aspendale in Lexington. At that time, it was one of the largest housing projects in the country, and they had decided to close it. So we got access to this area. And you filmed you know, Candyman. Huh? You filmed Candyman. Oh, it, it, it looked like it. It did, really. <laughs> it did look like Candyman. That still gives me stuff. Oh, well, we, well, we walked into Aspendale, and there were just hundreds of houses sitting in neighborhood after neighborhood, empty, abandoned, nobody there. Dang. And we had that place for three months. I would have set up shop there forever. Oh, I wish, we, I wish we could have. You could have done an ambulance. We drove an ambulance right through the middle of the street, running over trash cans and jumping curbs, and then wrecked it right into a building. You can't do that stuff now. But yes, we did. Matter of fact, USA Today picked up on it, and they actually did a little blurb. says, zombie planet shoots in former housing projects in Kentucky. Ooh, they weren't happy that they got picked up in USA Today. Why, were they fit? Why weren't they happy? I don't, I don't know. Oh, I thought they would be, but because um, at the time the film commission here was run by Diane Knight was one of the people in the film commission, mm -hmm. and she was an independent jewel. Everything we ever asked her, she made it happen. Cool. So can you get us this? Uh, we wanted to shoot a scene in Fort Boonesboro. We are the first independent feature to ever do anything in Fort Boonesboro that wasn't historically related. We did a we did a zombie shootout scene in Fort Boonesboro, mm -hmm. and when we uh, she got it for us, <clears throat> we showed up. And the guy meets us and he says, okay, here's the keys to the front gate. Um, you guys try, make sure you lock that gate when you leave. He left. We had Fort Boonesboro to ourselves. And we it, it was just wonderful. 
And uh, that was, but that was the kind of help that we got from the state of Kentucky in the beginning that made this all work. We needed a jail. So Diane calls somebody, somebody calls me within one hour. This guy calls me and says, I'm in Hazard, Kentucky. We've got a jail down here, the Perry County Jail that nobody uses anymore. Would you like to use it? We go down there, we used it all weekend long. And, uh, but it was that kind of attitude that really made independent filmmaking in the, the state really blossom, I think. One of the things about working in a state that's not known no. for film production, you get immediate Nowadays, it's like you have to kind of worry about getting not like uh -huh. here, here, I'm in Florida and, and and I didn't mean to misrepresent myself I'm not a filmmaker I just make podcasts um but um here in Florida I couldn't imagine we're both trying... we're both filmmakers <laughs> I I make videos we're both I, filmmakers I just kind of film yeah, I don't, call, I don't call it filmmaking, but I make videos. In fact, if it's okay with you, I'll probably make a little bit of video out of this. My podcast is mostly audio, but I like to make little videos out of the parts that are visual, like you showing your money. Um, is that okay while well, I'm thinking about it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Use whatever you want to use. Cool. So I, well, I have my, my real good money here to show you. You're really good what? What money. Is I wish I had my money. I showed you the money that Hollywood makes and don't even have my own money here because, like I said, we've got it out at the set. We just shot a scene. We shot Draw Western Roundup presents Audie Murphy and Apache Rifles. We just shot that last Saturday. Uh -huh. so the poker table there has got all the money laying all over it. And, and so it's all, you know, our cards are still laying there and I just haven't picked it up yet. So here I am and don't have my own money to show you. Well, if you get a picture, send it to me and I'll include it. I get have a picture of it. Will. That's something I never thought about. I never thought about the money. I guess I always thought people use Monopoly money. No, no. Well, and and they're very strict on money now. It has to say play money on it. It has to, it has to say sense. promotion picture use only. I was in, of all places, I'm in Georgia and I get a phone call. Oh. And this guy says, he says, um, are you missing any money off your set? I was like, no. And he said, well, somebody was passing $100 bills in Georgetown here. And we thought maybe it might have come off your set. And I'm like, no, it didn't come off my set. Were you uh, near Savannah? Huh? Was that Savannah? Uh, no, I was in a um, down around Ducktown, Tennessee area. Oh, I thought you said Georgia. I thought you yeah, said I was Georgia. on the Georgia line. Well, I was wondering because there, there's a Georgetown in Georgia, which is near Savannah. That's where I'm from. I was born and raised in Savannah. Oh, no, this is Georgetown, Kentucky. Oh, okay. I was wondering because there is a Georgetown in Savannah. And I was like, who do I need to talk to? Oh, that's not cool. That's not cool. We know there is there is that has been one of the disadvantages of being one of the large, one of the most known, or I should say notorious filmmakers in the state. Whenever somebody does something goofy or something they shouldn't do, they automatically assume I had something to do with it. You're the I'm, sheriff of filmmaking yeah. in Kentucky. You're the sheriff. You know, and, and now it's kind of funny because I ran into a filmmaker the other day and a young guy and and um, he said, what's your name? So I said, George Vanella. And he went, oh, really? Do, do, is there anybody you work with I would know? And it's like, wow, that was so disheartening because I used to say, and everybody knew me. But I've been doing TV now long enough that I've kind of gotten away from that. But he, I still knew, I knew his, um, the guy that was his mentor uh -huh. was the guy who I helped train. So. Isn't that neat? You're the grandfather. Oh, oh yeah. Somebody actually called me, Cherokee Hall said, you're the grandfather filmmaking in the States. Like, couldn't you think of a better term than grandfather? <laughs> well, that's, but think about it, the connotations. I will make you an offer you cannot refuse. Oh, yeah. Well, 
now these days is like a, uh, the offers are all made in other areas. I, I I do my own thing now, which is kind of an interesting situation to be in, which I've always tried to be in. Uh, and that's one thing we've, the reason I think we've been as successful as we have been is we never put ourselves in a situation where we try not to, that we can be stopped by somebody else. And that happens all the time. Good. You know, I'll, I'll actually tell people, I'll say, you know, I'm like the one guy I had the meeting with, you know, if you're going to help me, then great, we're going to get along great. If you're going to try to stop me, I'm going to sidestep you and keep going. And I do it. I do it quite often. You have to, you have to be savvy and you have to see chess you have to see several steps ahead. Like, what is this person trying to do? Oh, yes. We had a guy in set walk in on set one day and say, um, what is your insurance coverage? I said, well, why do you ask? He said, well, if I were to break my ankle or something, I just need to know what your insurance agent is. And I was like, oh, okay. A couple hours go by, he came back to me again. He said, I never did get the name of your insurance agent. And I said, why, why do you need that? He said, well, in case something happens. And I went over to my PA and I said, Let's get him off set as quick as we can. There's some fish. What do you think yeah. he was doing? I think he was looking for somewhere to twist his ankle. Like oh, it. like some kind of scheme or something. Sure. That's not good. No, yeah. and, and there are those people. We we have those people too. I um I got a call from a company out in Los Angeles. They wanted to take us to, and I always tell people, other filmmakers, this, this is a very important advice. When you see these casting things coming through saying, we're casting and we did the casting for Big Bang Theory. We did the casting for Frazier and mm -hmm. we want people of all types to come out and come to our casting call. They're not legit. They're never. You legit. have to look into that. If they're dropping big names like that, you got to wonder. I would definitely do my homework on that. Oh, well, I always tell people, you know what, if they're going to represent you mm -hmm. as an agent, and I still to this day see this happen, literally summer's coming. It'll come back around all the time. Mm -hmm. If they're going to represent present you as an agent they don't need you to buy a 2500 portfolio from them they don't, don't need you to ever take... pay money if they're asking no. you to pay money and, and i'm a writer so that's my main thing i'm a writer and i learned that I, I learned that early on because they're they're there's probably still there but there used to be a lot of scams where sure. companies would say we'll publish your book mm -hmm. and you have to pay thousands of dollars it's a vanity publishing service and you're considered a customer you're not okay. a writer you're a customer and they their whole business is charging you money to get this pretty little book out but it means nothing and then sell it to all your family and friends and then they're done with you i actually got offered one of those last mm -hmm. week and i'm not a writer uh, yeah. I got one, said um, it's about time for you to have your book published i'm like i don't have a book to publish <laughs> they got you got on a list somehow yeah. And, uh, but, but I always tell them that because it, they used to come to you and it made, used to make me so mad. Um, I would have people post on my Facebook say, hey, guys, you got to come out. And uh, this casting agency is coming through town. It's like, guys, they're gonna, you're going to have to take up. When I first came to Lexington, mm -hmm. my agent in Hawaii recommended the only agent in town here he considered legitimate. Yeah. At that time, there were lots of these agencies. They've all went away now. They've all went online. But okay. I think at that time, there was four of them in Lexington alone. Mm -hmm. where everybody walked in the door was accepted. You had to take yeah. acting lessons, dancing lessons. Portfolio. They're selling you all that. That's and, uh, the scary part. Mm -hmm. So my, my agent said, I want you to go talk with this guy. It was, I, and I forget what the guy's name was, but he, was, he, he considered him the only legitimate agent in Lexington. Mm -hmm. So I went and talked to the guy. And right away, he told me, he said, he said sit down. He said, I'm not going to try to sell you anything. He said, Good. you know what that's all about. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, none of these other agencies in town are legitimate. Mm -hmm. And I, but 
I went into one of them, starts with the eyes, all I'll say. Okay. After I talked to him. And I walked in and they said, well, uh, do you have a resume? I gave it to him. And they said, oh, okay. Well, first thing we're going to need to do is get you signed up on acting lessons. And I said, well, I said, but I said, if you look at my resume, I said, I've taught acting classes. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, but you haven't taken our acting classes. It's and uh, then we're going to get you into a filmmaking class. I said, well, but I've made films. Yeah, but you haven't made films like we do it. And I said, you're not really an agency at all, are you? I said, you're, and the guy didn't say anything. Anyway, so I always- It's a racket. It's, it's a racket. A racket. You're, you're a customer and it's not going to help your career one bit. You're going to have a beautiful portfolio, but you're going to pay 10 times for what you could have gotten anybody to do it. And most people can't afford that. You'll go under mm. before before you get anywhere. Most people can't. I mean, if, if you have the money, fine, if that's what sure. you want to do. But most people don't. And it's just, it's taking advantage of people's well, dreams. And, you know, and, and digital photography has gotten so high tech now mm -hmm. that they are like, um, I was looking at uh, Carrie Brock's work. Uh, one of my producers, Gregory Brock, his wife shoots photos. Okay. And she could shoot you the most beautiful portfolio mm. ever and do it for one, you know, one tenth of what those other people would charge you. And so now there are there are options. At that time, it was like, okay, if you're gonna if you're gonna get into acting, then you've got to use this guy because he shoots headshots. It's not like that anymore. No, and I don't want it to be like that. No, is that's when I was talking about Hawaii. Loved Hawaii, mm -hmm. but um it was pay or play. And they do that a lot in LA now too. They still do that where you've got to take acting lessons from this acting school in order to get this casting agent to put your name into the pot to get on Frasier. Frasier is a prime example. That was actually- exposed. I didn't know that. I didn't yeah, know Fra that. Well, it was, and it's not blaming Frasier. Yeah. Frasier was the one that they did an expose on. Okay. Uh, Frasier was, it was a pay for play to even get as an extra in the background, you had to spend- thousands of dollars in acting classes yes it was uh, these two or three casting agents had gotten their claws into it and it's like if you want to get on fraser you've got to take these lessons and probably that was, the people behind fraser probably didn't even know it i don't yeah, know grammar knew that they probably didn't know that they don't know oh, everything sure that goes did. on yeah i'm sure they didn't I, but it was that was and um, i think there's still uh, some of that that goes on in los angeles now but mm -hmm. hawaii was the same way there was one or two casting agents on the entire island that you had to go through them. When I was there, Fantasy Island had just started up the new Fantasy Island. Oh, yeah. And that oh. was all Malcolm McDowell. And okay. So they were saying, okay, if you want to get on there, you've got to take these acting lessons. And you're talking hundreds of dollars just to get a chance to audition for it. So I, I just, I tell people, if you're an actor, if you're a producer or director, be careful. If somebody's trying to charge you, that's what they're actually into. Don't fall for it. Don't fall it's for it. It's a racket. It, I know. It makes me very angry. I always, I always go off about it. It's like, I don't, it may, it's a bad look for all of us. It, makes us all it pisses me off too. And I don't know about as far as casting and stuff goes, but I know with writing, even if you spend all that money, it doesn't mean that you're going to become a star. It just oh, means no. they're going to produce your book and, and it probably won't even be in Barnes and Noble or whatever. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's a racket for them and they are not looking out for you at all. And yes, their their interest is how much money you have, and when you're done, they're done. They'll um, milk you. You know, and, and again, it, it's it's playing on people's dreams and mm -hmm. their hopes. And a lot of those people, once they have that taken away from them, and they lose all that money, they kind of just they get out of the business. They have crazy. to. Yep. Well, they have to. I mean, how long can you stay in Los Angeles? You're waiting tables, waiting for your big break. 
you've spent every bit of money you have doing these acting classes and, you know, doing all that. And it goes nowhere. That's your shot. You yeah, wasted and, your shot. And, you know, and you asked me if this all began with, you asked me about casting. Um, once we, once we got down to where we had quite a few people that we really liked, it was amazing because we started using the same people over and over and over. You've got all this big pool of actors, but you find yourself using the same actors over and over. Orson Welles, they called him the Mercury Players. Orson Welles would actually, he had the same actors he used every time. And somebody asked him, so why do you use Joseph Cotton? Why do you use these people over and over and over? He said, because I can rely on them. I know that they're going to come in. They're going to be on time, know their lines, hit their marks. And you find yourself, if you make more than one picture, you'll start gravitating toward the same actors. Stacy Gillespie is a workhorse. He's been in hundreds of movies in the state of Kentucky. It's almost like a law here now. If you make a movie here, Stacy's got to be in it somewhere. <laughs> but that guy shows up every day on time, shows up with his lines memorized, hits his mark, always believing. Awesome. That's the kind of actor you look for. Professional. Other actors, yes, other actors show up whenever they're ready. We had one actor. It was the biggest scene in the movie for him in this scene. Mm -hmm. And I had told him for two weeks, I said, man, this is your scene. Mm -hmm. These lines are the ones that you're going to take everywhere with you in your reel and say, you want to see what I've done? Watch this scene. Mm -hmm. He shows up on set eating a hamburger and he says, what are we doing today? And I said, I said, this is your scene. He said, oh, the one you're telling me about? I said, yeah. And I quickly realized he hadn't even read. I would be so pissed. That was the last time I used him. And well, see, and yeah. It's like, you got to remember, I always tell filmmakers too, have a long memory because if mm -hmm. that person does that to you this time, they'll do it to you again and get people who really want to be there. Don't get people who want to play at it, want it for a hobby. Get people who want to be there on set. Yeah, and, and take it seriously. Yes, and, and those is, are the ones that, that want it to be as good as you want it to be. Yeah, yeah. And even if it is a hobby for them, they, they can be professional. They can do a good job. They know that you're counting on them. This is their moment. They need to take that moment. Because one of the things that I've, you know, thought with the filmmaking business is if you're an actor, you're always auditioning. Even if you're already in the movie, you're still auditioning because you're auditioning for the next one. Sure. So, continue to make a good impression. Don't slack off. I hate diva-like behavior. And mm -hmm. one of the... Yeah, and one of the things I like about, you know, small productions, low budget type stuff is it doesn't seem like there's a lot of room for diva-like behavior. No, and we've had it. We've, I've actually told people that so you need to leave your attitude at the door as you walk in. Right. You know, um, the only the only diva on the set is me because I've got a, I'm a director. So but you're professional and you're well, not, it's not ego. No, and I'm not, and I'm not mean. I, I really am not. But, you know, um, and also you just talk about being an actor on a small movie. Mm -hmm. Frank Farhat played in Zombie Planet. He actually was okay. a king. He played the star in Zombie Planet. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he decides he's going to go to L.A. So he goes to L.A. After being out there a few months, he contacts me and he says, man, he said, I can't get people to even talk to me. And I said, I said, Frank, are, are you showing him the cover of Zombie Planet? Because his picture's on the cover. Yeah. He said, no. And I said, when you walk into the next casting call and they say, what have you done? Don't give me your resume. Hand them that DVD and say, that's what I've done. Mm -hmm. That's me on the cover. Good. And he was on King of Queens the next week. So Isn't that awesome? Yep. Because it's like he showed him, but you can take what you've done here and it gives you that reel to go out to LA or go to, you know, it's not like it used to be. 
everybody would come here and they would get to be good at what they were doing. Then they would go to Los Angeles. They would go to New York. Uh -huh. You can now have a career and stay where you're Which at. is nice. It is mm -hmm. because we are in a worldwide, uh, it's a worldwide market now. I had Dance with a Vampire completely, the score completely written for Dance with a Vampire by a guy I had never met. Okay. He, he wrote the score. He was in Hawaii. I was here. I would send him the scenes. I would say, here's what I want on this scene. I want it to rise here, lower there. I want some tension. I want drama here. Da, da, da. Mm -hmm. He would send me back the, the song. I would plug it in and be like, oh, that's great. We never, never met. It's a lot more opportunity. It's also a lot more competition, though. Oh, it truly is. It truly is. You know, like I said, I think now that I'm in a, uh, in the streaming television, we've mm -hmm. shot, I bet you we've shot... 250 shows in the past two years on streaming television and the pressure is so much different because we shot a draw western theater thing last week after i got done shooting it the actors we had a great time we laughed everybody went their separate ways i came back i got on my big g mac i started editing it and now everything's in my hands one day of all that shooting then i come back and it's in my hands when you're shooting a feature it's three months four months of that. And every day you come back and you look at the rushes and do this. And do this. So I have worked into a part of the business that I'm very comfortable with. And my, but does that say I'm not going to do a feature? Yes, I am going to do another feature. I'm going to do this Western. Do simply it. Because I have to justify all these guns and rifles. <laughs> yeah. There's a reason for this. It's a business write-off. Um, yeah, yeah. I need, I need that hundred dollar duster because it's for the movie. That, that's it. I got toys laying all over the house, but it's for the movie. Well, and I believe that, you know, you're a collector. It's fun. You know what I've been thinking about, just thinking about enthusiasm for Westerns, that remind me of Luke Perry. Remember him? Sure, sure. He loved Westerns. He and actually made a couple too. He did. Um, and he did a lot for Hallmark too. This is my guilty pleasure. I watch Hallmark movies. Whatever. Hallmark actually are good movies. They're good and they sell well. They have very long shelf lives. Mm -hmm. And some of them are very well put together. Some of them, so much, but some of them are really good. You know, they're gripping and they're well made and well cast because they pretty much use the same casting person every time. Um, but the ones I used to have the Hallmark movie app, I had to give it up because I'm broke. But you could see a lot of their old movies, and he had a whole series of Western movies, and he was so good in them, and he loved them so much that I think his final performance, or one of his final final performances, was the movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh, yes. And he sure. played a Western actor in that, and that must have been right. the best thing for him and I just keep thinking about him when you talk about you know western movies I just imagine how much he loved western movies you and, know and I, and I actually liked that movie because they did they captured that era so well I mean it, it was really they captured what it was like to be on a western tv series set mm -hmm. and uh, and I thought that was a wonderful part of that movie you know, a lot of people knocked it because of the fantasy element toward the end but the, the movie itself was beautifully, it was it a love letter. It was. was. And I didn't know about the set. Um, I'm trying to think of who it was now, but that the set, the um, kind of like what you were talking about, where they had this whole like town where the, um, where um, 
Charles Manson and his cult were hanging out. Do you remember Lawn, what I'm talking Lawn about? Lawn Ranch, yes. Lawn yeah, ranch. that ranch. I didn't know anything about that until that movie. Yeah. And I knew yeah. about the Charles Manson family, obviously, but I didn't know about that whole thing. And and the character, oh, Brad Pitt's character. Um, he goes out and he's worried about the guy because the guy, speaking of being conned, the guy had totally been conned by the Manson family. And I was like, Oh yeah, and that that was uh oh what was his name? His name was George something, but that was the yeah. one. The, the girls, you know, here he was. This guy was half blind, half crippled as he could be, and he's got these two beautiful girls taking care of him all the time. So they just said, you know, hey George, we're gonna move in. And next thing you know, he's got hippies, hippies everywhere. Everywhere, and that might have been okay if they were just hippies, but it was the Charles Manson family. Oh yeah, so, you know they were. Evil has no era. Here they are in the, in the era of love and peace and a bunch of little psychopaths. But yeah, exactly. I'm like, you know, if they've been just running the mill hippies, it might have been all right. Like, well, he's happy. They're taking care of the ranch. Okay. But no, it's Charles Manson's people. And it's like, that's not okay. You know, they're, they're, I actually, um, and I always found that fascinating how mm-hmm. that he could take those nice young little suburban girls. And mm-hmm. turn, but they're thinking that there's probably about eight more bodies on Spawn Ranch. They just haven't found them yet. There's at least two they know of. Uh, there was a stunt man that disappeared out there. And uh, um, so there's two that they're pretty sure about. Anyway, that's a fascinating story. And I thought Tarantino did a great job. With it. He did do a great job. And I like true crime too. So well, I'm, I'm like, I'm like gripped by it. I'm like, but that's the dark side of Hollywood. That, you know, the Black Dahlia, all of that. That's oh, the yeah. part. You see the sparkling part on TV, but then there's the dark underside of people who did not fare well in Hollywood. Oh, the George, you know, everybody's pretty much sure George Reeves didn't shoot himself, but that's the official thing. I mean, and, uh, you know, of course, um, you've got a couple other very famous crimes that happened in the silent era that Uh just kind of went unsolved all these years. Well, and back then, and there's rumors, I don't want to like, you know, accuse someone of something that may not be true, but there's always been rumors that the LAPD, they got money and they manipulated things. There's always been stories about that. Oh, always, always. And, uh, you know, even the Robert Kennedy assassination, there's, it's funny that they took one of the most important pieces of American history, which is Mm -hmm. the door with the bullets in it and burned it. It's like, how do you burn a piece of evidence like that? (laughs) But they did, they burned it. It's cover-ups. I know. That, yeah. Um, Give me start on true crime. We'll go hold it. <laughs> well, that's another thing. You should do some true crime. That's an okay. I was thinking that when I was watching, I watched a little bit of um, hell, telephone, telephone. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like like detective stuff. So I really like the detective parts. So There's you a good should twist in that one. There's a good twist in that one. I, 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 that stars Ari Lehman. Ari Lehman's in, and John Dugan, Texas Chance okay. Master. He, he plays in it too. But Ari Lehman from uh, the, he's the first Jason on Friday the Thirteenth. Wonderful guy. He plays the circuit maker in there. He's the guy with the hair. He uh-huh. does a wonderful job. And we he came into Kentucky. We had him here for a couple of weeks, and he does does a fabulous job in it. But um, yeah, I've my first one of the first screenplays I worked on was called Yours Truly Jack, and it was a fictional account of the hundred year anniversary of Jack the Ripper, and the murders start again. And this, oh. was done, this was done before the 100 year anniversary. And then I worked on one called Deviant and it was the true story of Ed Gein. We actually <gasps> planned to do it. Yeah, we actually had a, a movie. Oh, I got a great story about that. Okay. Here's, another, here's another lesson for, um, for writers, especially mm-hmm. in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. We did a movie. Um, there's a book by Harold Schechter called Deviant. 
I got the rights to it and I turned okay. it into a screenplay. Mm -hmm. So um, I have the screenplay and we go down and we're talking with some guys in Alabama about producing it. And then um, I'm talking to a guy out in LA, he's a friend of mine, Kiave. And Kiave said, hey, by the way, I went to a party the other night and there was an actor there, a famous actor. I'm not gonna say who it was, people will put two and two together. He's a famous actor there. And he wanted to see your screenplay. He said, that was a fascinating story. And he said, so I gave him the screenplay. And I said, Kiave, I said, did you get him to sign off on that, that you gave him that screen? No, no, this guy's, a, this guy's a, real, a real actor. He's not gonna do anything with the screenplay. A year later, the movie comes out. Oh, I would be pissed. Starring this actor, and there are scenes taken right off the page of our screenplay, word so for word. Pissed. And so I contacted his people and said, I cannot believe you did this. You, you know, our friend gave you guys that script and they said, prove it. And I said, well, he'll, he'll testify to it. I said, prove it. You know, we'll, we'll go to court. We got lots of money. We'll go to court. We'll keep you in court for years. Prove that we took your screenplay and nothing we could do. It's Art Buckwald went through the same thing with coming to America. Art Buckwald wrote the first treatment for coming I to America. I didn't know that. Yes, he did. That's the dark side, yeah. I love that movie, but now I'm oh, like, I do too. Yeah. But uh, Art Buckwald wrote a treatment of, of the story about a prince who comes to America, and uh -huh. well, the movie came out, of course. And Art Buckwald sued them for years and years and years. Uh -huh. He finally got a settlement, okay. and the settlement didn't even cover his legal costs. But to you know, to say that they stole his treatment, I I can't say that. But okay. I know it was a case in court for years. Yeah. Um, there's a, also, there's, I haven't ever really read into it, but E.T. the Extraterrestrial. There was a stage play called E.T. in Los Angeles Aww. two months before Spielberg came out with the so treatment. Sad. <laughs> well, there, and, but on the other hand, everybody has ideas and people yeah. call ideas. So I mean, have, it's all stolen. Yeah, you have to really look at it because, you know, People can have similar ideas. That doesn't mean sure. they're they're actively stealing it. It and could be do. a coincidence. It could be a coincidence. So before you accuse people, you have to really look at it. But in this case, it sounds like they stole your your idea. Well, and, and the Romero thing, like I said, it, it wasn't that they stole our idea. Our idea when I wrote the screenplay for Zombie Planet, mm -hmm. I just said what would cause the what would cause the zombie plague? And I thought mm -hmm. a diet drug. And then I said, yeah. okay, well. What would um, what would everybody do? They would wall up into government safe zones, yeah. and those are just elements that almost anybody would probably come up with. They yeah. just happened to come up with them too, and yeah. thought and thought we had stole from them. Well, and you wouldn't have been you wouldn't have made any deal about it if they hadn't tried to sue you first. Right, and, and that's and the thing. Of course, yeah. nobody sued anybody once I told yeah. them. Once I said, "Hey, we might sue you," they just went away. They <laughs> ran away because they knew they were already bluffing. Well, I had something similar happen. Um, not to your degree, but I used to write, I used to do a music podcast. That was my first podcast was music podcast. I love independent music. I did it for years. And when you're a music podcaster, you get a lot of um, press kits. You know, you get stuff with the music already in there and it's understood. You're going to maybe play a little bit of their music or write about their music or something. Sure. And I got, um, a link to an mp3 for a band and I really loved it I loved it to death and I just did a post on my blog I didn't even do the podcast now that I think about it, it wasn't even the podcast I did a post on my blog and I linked 
to the MP3 they sent me. So it was to their own site. I didn't even make my own. I did it to their site. Their site, okay. I got a cease and desist from their London publishers. And I was pissed. And I can't, I can't it was, I remember it was December. I'm trying to think of what year. I want to say it was like 2000 and it was 2010. Nope, nope, two, maybe 2009, somewhere around there. I remember it was December and I was pissed, totally pissed because they sent me the damn thing. Yeah, you guys sent it to me. They yeah. sent it to me and I've been doing it for years and I did it for years after though they did that did kind of tarnish my enthusiasm a little bit but I was pissed oh I would be too so I emailed back the London publisher and I got back a spew of filth well you don't need to do this crap (laughs) I emailed the American um agents and they were very apologetic they said that shouldn't have happened I'm sorry and I was like but it tarnished me towards that band. And I know I shouldn't do that because I know that there's two people in a band and I know that they had nothing to do with this. It was outside of them, but just as a mental psychological thing, it tarnished me to them. And I felt bad because I really loved their music, but I wouldn't listen to their music anymore because it just brought up pissness to me. Oh, sure, absolutely. And they went on to win an Oscar for something else. And I was like, I hate them. And everyone like everyone else is like, oh, they're so great. I love them. I'm like, F you. They suck. They suck. So, you know, it's like <sighs> Well, you know, and, and the thing is, it's like when when somebody treats you like that, mm-hmm. um, that that's what I always talk about actors too. You can have an actor who's having a bad day, but when they treat somebody badly, then that person tells everybody in their family, I don't like them anymore. And those people don't like them. You too. remember. So the way, the way you treat the people that you're it's dealing a with, working thing. with. Yeah, well, I, I agree with you. I've got, a, you know, there's a couple people that there's only a handful of people I can honestly say over 30 years that I won't work with again. Yeah. Just, I mean, a handful. Mm-hmm. But the, the reason I won't work with them is because of the things like that, you know, goofy things like that. Pisses me off. And to get a cease and desist, that's terrifying. I mean, I'm a one person operation and this isn't a professional thing. I mean, one day if it, I would love for it to be a professional thing, but it's not, you know, I don't make any money. It's just something you I will. like to do. I hope so. I keep trying, but it's something I do because it, I like doing it. I say, keep storming the gates, keep storming I the do. gates. I keep storming my first gates. royalty checks in a little frame in there. <laughs> awesome. And that's important. And so I keep trying, but you know, since I'm not professional, I have to do a lot on the honor system. I'm trusting that when people, when, when, pre, pre, um, what am I trying to say? When promotional companies, cause that's where I would get the stuff from, from these promotional companies, when they send me this stuff, I'm trusting that I can use it. Oh, why, why would they send it to you if you can't use it? Right. And it pissed me off because obviously left hand isn't talking to right hand. And I'm the one who gets a cease and desist. And when you're a little lowly podcaster in Florida and you don't have any, I don't have a team. I don't, I don't even have anybody doing any of this stuff with me. And you get a cease and desist, it scares the crap oh, out of you. Very scary. And what if you would have turned around and got a lawyer to answer that? Then you could be out a thousand dollars just getting an answer to that. 
you know, and I couldn't. Well, yeah, and so that is just so unnecessary in this game, and and a lot of people know, you know, like I said, things have changed so much in the last ten years because everything has gone worldwide, gone digital, that it's not as easy to be that mean because if yeah. you are that mean now, somebody just go cross the board with it and say, okay, this person treated me like a total jerk, and and it spreads like wildfire. I've got to get in here. I've got um, two more shows in the can that we shot from Draw Western Roundup. We've got, uh -huh. and I've got to get both those ready. We have um, an opportunity that came about with Walling for Broadcasting uh -huh. on Spectrum Cable. They're going to run our show, Draw Western Roundup, or Draw Yay. Western Theater. Channel 9 presents Draw Western Theater That's Saturdays at 1 p.m. So, so we're getting cool. all those together. So we're going to run or 22 episodes on cable TV. Well, see, and I'll highlight that when I'm putting this together, because that's a big deal. Oh, it is. We're, we're, we're thrilled about it. So we're just uh, getting those together. We've got nine in the can, and we have to have a season of 22. So we got a lot of work to do. So. That is a lot of work. Well, OK, let's go ahead and talk about um, GSC, and then we can talk about more of, your, of the shows you've done. How's sure. that sound? Well, All right. Um, GSZ came about because we did a movie called Bunker of Blood. Okay. In Bunker of Blood, we had a studio. And I said, okay, you know what? I want to build a missile console. Mm -hmm. So we built a missile console just like you saw in the old 60s movies with the, the screens. And we got a vacuum former and we vacuum formed panels. And we built this really cool missile console. And we did Bunker of Blood. And the, uh, the concept of Bunker of Blood is, and again, I know every story has been done, but there's a nuclear exchange that gets out of hand. And so the government sends the president and all his people. We used to live in West Virginia for a while, and they had the Greenbrier there. And for years, nobody knew the Greenbrier had an entire underground complex that all of Congress and the Senate would all fly to the Greenbrier. They would survive for two years underground while the rest of us on the earth would die. And this Which is what I got from that movie. I was like, well, that yes. president's a jerk because he's... Yes. Yeah, you know, exactly. he's in the bunker and he's like, well, I'm down here. We haven't forgotten you. I'm down here in the bunker. Yep. I was like, you jackass. Yeah, we're all good. We all up there. But it's like, but that's true. The Greenbrier really was set up that way. You can actually go tour it now. But for years, nobody knew this. They already had a, a, an exit strategy when the rest of us died. So I thought, okay, yeah, I love so it. the president is flown to this bunker and they take him in the bunker. What happens if he gets in the bunker and kind of like alien, he gets in there and there's something in the bunker with him. And I like that, it. That's the whole concept with Bunker of Blood. This creature in there starts preying on them. They're sealed in with it, so they got to figure out how to kill it. And um, it's got a good little twist in the end on it, too. But after we finished Bunker of Blood, I thought, okay, we still got all these sets. We built a medical room. We built a, um, a launching room. We built all this stuff. Why don't we do something else? And I thought, I used to love those duck and cover things when I was a kid. It's like, okay, a nuclear explosion happens, duck under your desk, and you'll be safe. No, you'll just leave a funny shadow is all you do. Yeah. Right? I thought, why don't we do our own government what to do in the case of a zombie apocalypse video? And that was the concept we went with. I asked each actor, I said, what would you like to do? Mm -hmm. And I remember um, John actually said, he said, well, I want to do, uh, what about investing in money, investing your money in government bonds, so you uh -huh. can do the bunker. Uh -huh. so, John, so John Davis did that one. Speaking of a scam, what well, he came up with a scam. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
then we have one guy who said, I want to do about what you do if you're out in the open. So he did his own thing. And each one of these segments got better and better and better. And we put them together and, um, and it got picked up for distribution and it went out the year right after Santa Claus versus the Zombie. When I, I made some notes because I, I was really struck by a lot of things that I thought were funny. Um, let me get to my notes. Let's see. Um, Have you ever seen the Edison death machine? No, I haven't. It's the, two or three times the Edison death machine. We've had feelers from Hollywood that come oh. our way saying, saying we really like that concept and uh -huh. we like, and, uh, it, nothing's ever come out of it yet, but it's a concept where, um, you know, the Edison death machine was always rumored to be real, that mm -hmm. Thomas Edison actually built a device for communicating with the dead. Jerry oh. Williams told me, he said, have you ever heard of this? And I was like, no. So I started researching it. And sure enough, supposedly, he had said, I think we can build a device to communicate. I love with that stuff. I love the paranormal too. Oh, well, and, and it, they actually said that he actually worked on a working prototype and people saw this thing. Well, after he died, his family didn't want him to come off as a nutcase, so they destroyed mm. everything about him. Um, so in a museum, there's this museum heist to get mm -hmm. jewels, and they accidentally run into this machine. It says unknown Edison device. They end up taking it instead, and then they find out this thing can bring back anybody. So you dial them in, it brings them back to the dead. So they decide to pillage all the greatest graves in the world by not digging them up, but bringing them back and letting them bring the treasures. Wow. And, and of course, things go wrong from there. <laughs> I'm sure they do, because that could be. But we had, uh, but that story had quite a few uh, actors. We, we actually did it interesting because the actor plays a role in one part of the movie, then he plays the dead character in another part. So everybody who's playing one of the corpses, like we have Buddy Gilbert, Elvis is what it is. Oh. You see him as Buddy Gilbert, and then. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the movie, you see a firefighter who's talking about helping this guy. Well, the firefighter's the same actor. We wanted to make sure they got two scenes. So um, we had a pirate. They bring back a pirate, a samurai warrior. David Fultz played the samurai warrior in it. Link Kirschbaum plays our martial artist in it. Mm -hmm. Those guys fought for eight hours with samurai swords. Um, David Fultz wearing a 80-pound full armor. And That's Link a lot. Kirschbaum, oh, it's, but they fought there. The Toyota talking about getting you know, access to things. Toyota has a Japanese garden they built over here in Georgetown. They gave us access to it. So here we are in this beautiful Japanese garden with the giant doors that open. Looks like we're in Japan. Yeah. So in the movie, they fly to Japan to do that. But it's really there, huh? It's really there. That's but uh, so but it's, that's, we've had really good luck with getting very unique locations. And uh, so Bunker Blood and the GSZ surviving the zombie plague, they're all kind of claustrophobic because we're all in one place. Except, right, except that reminds me, except for the helicopter scene. Did you see uh -huh. that? There's a helicopter I, scene. I watched the whole movie, so I, I did, yeah. And we, uh, um, we called Diane Knight at the film commission. We said, we need a helicopter, a big Huey helicopter. Nice. Calls back in two hours and says, you need to be in Frankfurt on Wednesday at 9 a.m. They've got a helicopter for you. <laughs> so, so we called out there getting this giant helicopter we didn't even go up we made it look like it went up but yeah. the blades are turning and we're all sitting in there talking and rocking in the helicopter it's a lot of fun so you also got to be ready to move when you're an independent filmmaker and you're depending on other people you have to be ready to move huh when you say have you got one and they've got it you better go get it Absolutely. Yeah. 
there's no like, well, let me look at my schedule. No, you got to go. Well, and, and like I say, it really, really helps a ton that we had Diane Knight. Mm-hmm. Doug Campbell's another one. When I met with that one guy I was telling you about, you know, he said, you're never going to make films here at all. Well, Doug Campbell contacts me, works for KET. He said, well, I want you to come down and talk to me. So I got down and talked to Doug and Doug said, he said, part of my job here at KET, um, Kentucky Educational Television, is to nurture filmmakers. And he said, and I see what you guys have been doing. He said, you let me know what you need and how you need help. And I will see that it gets done. I could pick up a phone and say, hey, Doug, I need to find out about a cameraman for this, this, and this. Two hours later, I get a phone call. Hey, this is so-and-so. Doug said you needed this. Isn't that nice? Yes, we had that kind of help. We really did. Things have kind of changed here in Kentucky. There's a new film commission in. They really have gotten, um, and I'm not complaining about them, so you guys, it's film commission. But they've gotten more interested in Hollywood. They want Hollywood to come. So everything is, we actually sat in a meeting with them, and they said, well, if you're an independent filmmaker, we're really not that interested in you because you're not going anywhere. We want other, and when he said that, oh, it just ran all over me. It's like we're here year after year, day in and day out, making movies in this state. And you're saying we really don't matter to you. Now, with when Diane was in the, in the film commission, it was us first. And uh, that is so important. Contact, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a producer mm-hmm. or director, contact your film commission and say, hey, help me do this. And right. you might be amazed what they may help you do. Yeah, I think that's the Atlanta f- effect because Atlanta has Marvel now and like Stranger Things and stuff like that. And so I guess other metropolitan areas are getting a little puffy like, oh, well, they get The Walking Dead and they get Marvel. Let's see what we can get, you know. Yeah, I do have a story about that, though. We were in Los yeah. Angeles and uh, this guy, I've got stories about everything. I'm that's gonna do fine. It. We were in Los Angeles and I was at a party and this guy said, I hear you're from Kentucky. I said, yeah. He said, I've got a two and a half million dollar budget. Tell me why I should come to Kentucky. And I said, well, you come to Kentucky. I said, I can just about get you anything you want for a tenth the price that you can get about anywhere else in the country. And he said, well, Detroit's offering me a 51% tax incentive. And I said, well, unfortunately, our governor at that time mm-hmm. and our film commission at now are not interested in tax incentives whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I said, we can't give you that. But I'll tell you what we can do. You come there, everybody's going to be here to help you make your movie. No, Detroit's offering me 51%. I said, okay. So he goes to Detroit. About six months later, I get a call from a guy. He says, hey, I was on that crew of that guy that you talked to when we went to Detroit. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, the first week of filming, they stole over $100,000 worth of our equipment. (laughs) Who stole it? Who stole it? People walk on set, take their stuff. He said, they would just walk on set grab a camera and just walk off set that's he insane said, he said it was the most he said after about two weeks of filming they left and i'm, I'm sure you know hey detroit's probably a wonderful place now but, yeah but, you know, not but, knocking detroit but he said uh, um actually i did an episode of a tv show called uh, uh pawn stars have you ever seen that one yeah no, hard, hardcore pawn okay that was, that was the one that was filmed in detroit neat okay i actually did an episode of that i got kicked out of there for talking bad about detroit you know, nothing about it. I'm not saying anything bad about the people of Detroit. No, I'm it's, not either. But, yeah. but, you know, I, I just thought that was ironic after the guy said, hey, I'm not coming to Kentucky. I can get a tax incentive. $100,000 first week. This the tax incentives aren't everything. They're not everything. Go to where their filmmaking is friendly to you. And if you do run into that attitude where what kind of budget do you have? What, you know, what are you going to do for us and stuff? 
then sidestep those people and keep making movies right where you're at. Don't let keep any going. of that stop you. Absolutely. You got to weigh what they're offering you versus what you already have. And if they're offering you a lot, just remember a lot of that is smoke. And a lot of it comes with strings attached. You know, um, I got offered to make a movie for a guy and right away I turned him down because I knew the guy. And mm -hmm. he said, uh, he said, well, if you come and make this movie, he said, as long as you understand you're working for me and you'll do it my way. And I said, well, then we can't work together because I don't know your way not, may not work. And, okay. uh, and he's just that kind of a guy. But um, another, we did a movie here called Monstrosity that again had John Dugan in it. And uh, Monstrosity, we needed a big warehouse. Mm -hmm. We go right over here, there's a giant warehouse over here. And we had that warehouse for three months practically given to us that, okay, yeah. use it. And it's one of the greatest, locations we ever shot in of course it was a pretty reputable warehouse we uh, we built walls in it we did all kinds of stuff but just make you gotta gotta ask if if you want something to be made and you don't be afraid to go say hey i need this can you get this for me and 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 do it and a lot of times there's there's government money there like from the film commission or from something so don't be afraid to take that if it's there Oh, it's there. Absolutely. Use funding anywhere you can. Now, I see a lot of people talk about GoFundMe and crowdsourcing and all that stuff. That is also one of those pie in the sky things. It sounds wonderful and people do get their money from there. But I don't, I personally know of probably 25 people that said they're going to raise their funding that way and not one of them did. So, well, and there's a problem on the consumer end that some people start a campaign and like Kickstarter and they don't actually do anything and the people don't get anything for their money. Right. Oh yes. I've heard of that many times too. I mean, don't be afraid to try it, try everything, mm -hmm. but don't mm -hmm. hang your hat on it. Don't make it your one and only hope for, for making a movie. Yeah. And it's also very time intensive. If you do like a Kickstarter, you have to be able to produce things for the people. And it's like a constant, you know, updating your site and everything. It's a whole separate job updating your Kickstarter campaign. So, and, and you know, and you're going to, you're, even though you don't have official partners, you're going to have partners. You're going to have people who want to keep their fingers in the pie. And uh, the, the more autonomous you can be, the more you can work with yourself, the better off you're going to be. I always go back to military terms. You are the captain of the ship. You are mm -hmm. the leader of the warriors. It is a battle. Every scene is a battle. You've got to get mm -hmm. the victory of that scene in the can. And the more people you have in your ear and the more people that you're actually having to rely on, the harder it is to do it. You've got right. to be the one who pushes through it. Right. Um, there's a show I like. It's on ABC. It's called A Million Little Things. Mm -hmm. I've heard and They had a storyline. Well, it's ongoing right now. Um, one of the characters is a filmmaker. And this is his first film. He had been doing commercials, like high-end, you know, like Lexus type commercials, but commercials. And this is his first film and it's based on something that happened to him and his friends, which is like the whole basis of the show, a friend commits suicide. So it was based on that and it's very personal to him. And they're doing now where COVID hit. So I guess, you know, their story is a year behind because in their story, COVID just hit. And he had his first table read he got a big star to be in it he got backing you know financers and everything and it was his first day at the table read and he walks in and he sees the little placeholders with everyone's name and they've got the storyboards and everything's just set it's so great and he's so happy and he's so proud he finally made it and then the guy came in and said 
the financers backed out. They didn't want to start anything if they didn't know they could finish it. And that tanked his whole production because of the financers. And it's so sad. We had the very same thing happen to us when we were working on that. I mentioned about Deviant. We had some guys in Alabama. We mm -hmm. went down there and talked with them. Mm -hmm. And um, they had like the governor's cousin wanted to finance this movie. And we go down and we did a table thing. And the first thing they did was the main reason we wanted to do this Ed Gein story is everybody had done it fictionalized. They'd done yeah. Silence of the Lambs that just came out, um, Psycho, all of those things. But nobody had actually, at that point, nobody had really done the real story. Okay. And so that was what the whole screenplay was about. Mm -hmm. Well, we sit down and these guys start talking back and forth. First thing we got to do is we got to add a bunch of nudity. We got to add a bunch of big breasted girls. He has to be able to chase them through the forest. He has to be able to do this and do that. I said, guys, you're getting away from the story again. I said, you know, that's all been done. Mm -hmm. And so that that did not go well. I said, it's not your that. movie anymore. Yeah, and that didn't go well. Well, about mm -hmm. two weeks later, they contact us and said, "Well, um, financing fell through." And so I was like, "Okay." And that was uh, we didn't weren't able to do anything with it again till the Hollywood guy made it his own. <laughs> mm -hmm. You see the well, writing on the wall, huh? It happens, but the thing is, that's why you've got to be resilient and you've got to keep control of it. If that does happen, then you sidestep that and you keep going. You know, somebody, they asked, they said, how did you ever finance Zombie Planet? I said, well, we put money back. Mm -hmm. And then we had a lot of people who wanted to get it made. So we had a lot of people that were working on, like, you know, just who wanted to be in movies. There weren't movies being made here. Mm -hmm. So those people helped out for free or they helped yeah. out. They got credits for it. You know, we got a lot of people on IMDb, a ton of people on IMDb. But yeah. Um, and, you know, and that's not that important to me anymore, but at that time it was. And, uh, th but those people made it for the sake of making it. Mm -hmm. And most of those people have went on to do other things. I mean, I'm amazed when I see some of these people, I'll see some of their work and uh, I, I watch a movie that somebody made. And I know the first day they worked on a movie was on my set. Which is And then good. they make their own movie. It's like, wow, that's amazing. You know, and, you know, yeah, and sometimes you do do things for credits. I mean, as a writer, I understand that sometimes it's good to have my name out there and I may not get paid anything or a lot, but it's something I can put on my resume. It's a stepping stone. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, I, I, I really thought about taking that deal with uh, with Trauma because yeah. it was going to put me on the shelf. Right. And at that time, that was a big selling point for a lot of these distributors. Mm -hmm. They would say, hey, I can get you into Best Buy. I can yeah. get you into FYE, FYI. Yeah. Yeah. And they could. And um, so a lot of people would sign deals. Um, there's a guy I know made a movie out of Moorhead. Mm -hmm. And it was a, actually a really good little movie. Mm -hmm. And he was getting ready to sign with a distributor named, um, well, I'm not even going to name the distributor because I don't think they're around anymore. So why? Why so? I told him, I said, look, well, yeah. And I, uh, I had a deal with them. Oh, another thing, uh, if you're an independent, when you hear these deals, they have to be seven years, 10 years. No, they don't. I have never signed. I've had eight distribution deals. The longest I've signed for has been three years. Okay. And they'll tell you, you can't do that. I've, I've done it eight times. So I know Good. it can be done. Yeah. But the reason I do that is I always tell them, I say, you know what? If you and I are going to get along so well and we're both going to make so much money, then in three years, I'm going to sign up for another five years. Yeah. But if we're not, we're not making any money, then three years, we can kind of go our separate ways. And they can't argue with that. One guy tried. He said, he said, wait a minute, we're going to have a lot invested. In you. We're going to have artwork. This, that, gonna. I said, well, in three years, we're still going to you know, know where all that's going. And uh, But one of the guys I was talking about, 
he was making a deal. He said, what do you think of these guys? I know that they carried one of your movies, Edison Death Machine. I said, you know, they carried the movie for one year. I saw it at FYI. I saw it all over in different stores, Best Buy. And I said, we never made one dime. And I said, after a year, I told them I was canceling the contract. They threatened to sue me. I said, go ahead. Um, you haven't lived up to your part of the agreement. I've got a contract. And so they just quietly went away. It's, it's to this day, I'll catch people in London, in England. Our movie will be in England. And I'll say, you can't play that. You don't have the rights to it. Oh yeah, I got the rights from these guys. And it, that's been 10 years ago now. And so, but, so they're still farming the rights out. But I told him, these guys are crooks, stay away from them. He still made the deal because he wanted his movie on a shelf and that's what he got. He did get that. So there are advantages to doing stepping stones. He did get, he was able to walk into a Best Buy and see his movie on the shelf. So it, it did have its purpose. So yeah. I'm not, I'm not knocking it. It did work for him. It's more of an advertising type thing. Yeah, I, I think of the old term lost leader. I always think about that, you know, from like stores, it's a lost leader. Absolutely. And, and like I said, there's nothing wrong making a deal that's going to make you a, get your name out there. The only thing you have to worry about is when does the deal end? I, uh, um, I still catch our movies for sale on certain sites that the distribution deal ended five years ago. And so when I contact the distributor, they say, oh, we're still selling old stock. It's like five years later, you're selling how many movies of these did you make? Well, that sounds like a well, they're printing, yeah, yeah, they're printing old stocks that they're doing. Yeah, it's like I don't know if that's old stock. Well that huh? But there are there are so many different avenues now. With <laughs> DVD is truly dead. They tried to kill it for years. But for a filmmaker, streaming, go streaming with your product because you can license it to 200 people. There's there's a Mike Roku has 9,000 channels now license it to 1,000 of those channels for 100 bucks each. And if you license it to 1,000 people for $100 each, you've made some money. And, uh, um, and those license rights can only be for one year. Mm -hmm. And so you have the license. I mean, David Sterling's a good friend of mine and he makes some um, very low budget movies, but they're very, very entertaining. And that's what he does. He licenses his movies all over the place. Mm -hmm. So you can see him on all the different streaming services and he does very well with it. Well, and the good thing about streaming is there's no real production. You don't have to make DVDs and it's the same yeah. movie. It's just you're making money off of the same movie over and over again, which is nice. There's no, there's no thousand dollar artwork. For <laughs> I know that sounds like a racket. I'm sorry. Oh, it was, it was all a racket. I mean, um, even our distribution costs for DVDs on that page, they were charging us like, I think it was $8 per DVD. They were only retailing them for $9. It's <laughs> ridiculous. See, that's how they're making money. Yeah, oh yeah. Sure. And you got to really think, are they trying to help me make money or are they making money for themselves? That's usually what's happening. Oh, I was going to tell you the story about... Um, Go ahead. Talking about people taking advantage of people's dreams. I mm -hmm. get a call from this company wanting to take me to the Cannes Film Festival. Mm -hmm. They loved Edison Death Machine. So they wanted us to go to the Cannes Film Festival we were going to have our own suite. We were going to do this, do that. And they said, look, your movie, the Con Film, is, is made for the Con Film Festival. I'm thinking, mm -hmm. I know a lot about the Con Film Festival. Edison Death Machine is not going to win the, the palms. Okay. <laughs> so, but this lady goes on and on and on. Uh, um, you're going to have a meet and greet at this hotel. Then we're going here and that and the other. 
And she says, we really believe in your movie, George. We want you to do this. And I'm like, wow. By then I'm thinking, this is just great. I can't believe this. Name the call, she says, now it's going to cost about $25,000. Do you want to wire that to us or do you want to? <laughs> At least you found that out in the same conversation, huh? Yeah, I was like, I was like, wait a minute. What happened to you believing in me? Well, yeah, but somebody's got to pay the bills. They believe you would pay that money. They did. And I was amazed to find out this very same company uh, promotes movies in Los Angeles at the festivals there. Mm -hmm. And if you'll pay them $2,500, they'll put your movie on their table. And they hit me with that one too. One of the guys I know has paid that money. He paid the $2,500. I said, did you get anything out of it? Nothing, not a thing. I guess you have to temper your expectations. You if do. you go in like, oh, wide-eyed and, you know, I'm going to be Judy Garland and I'm going to be discovered and all that. No. You and we've to... all been there in the very beginning of this. Sure. You could have sold me. Uh, I'm now a jaded old filmmaker. Now it's like, and he, you know, and when I say that, it's I mean, when somebody actually approaches me with that kind of nonsense, mm -hmm. I'm right away. Like, Oh, come on. You, know? you can pick it out pretty easily. Oh, you know, own, there are all kinds of signs. It's like, no, you it, know, it, if you only pay $25,000, we can make you a star. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, and it's sad because you think about when you're younger and all those hopes and innocence, and it's like... I, I, know, a, I know an actress, and uh, um, she's not from here, so before anybody starts uh, thinking, who am I talking about? She's not from here. But I know an actress that I think last time I checked, her mom had paid $35,000 in acting lessons for her. And she would learn, she learned more on our set in one week than she did for all that 35,000. All you're doing is funding that acting studio. That's all, all you're doing. Not it's a thing so wrong sad. with acting schools, but, you know, there's a, I always love it when somebody comes on a set and they'll say, that's not the way we learn to do that in film school. Like, well, that's the way we actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> Same it's, thing with acting class. You, there's not going to be a whole lot of, uh, call for acting like a tree on acting act here but you know but but i love acting acting teachers are great yeah i mean it, it's helpful and it's good it's just if it's a barrier to you getting a job that's a problem you know yeah. if you have to sign up with a certain acting studio before we're considering you that means that they've been coordinating and they got a racket going on everybody's getting a kickback you know uh, and I am a strong believer in if you want to become an actor, learn to act in high school, learn to act in college, because being on the boards and being in front of that live audience is a wonderful training ground. You know, uh, Carol Combs is my favorite teacher, and she instilled in me four years of drama. I took four years of drama in high school, and I truly, she would do things like bring in fencing instructors that had done Hollywood movies, and she... Um, you know, we learned to do diction. We learned to do accents. Now you can't use them, but we learned all that stuff. That is where to truly get your experience. And then once you get your experience there, go on to these independent movie sets. Learn to actually be on a set. I don't care if they yeah. got one light or a hundred lights. It's a movie set. You learn. And then, so you can learn You can learn better on a set than you can sit in real world. Yes, absolutely. And I'm not knocking school. School is no, no, great. It's a wonderful thing. School is a wonderful you thing. I would say if you're going to do school, go to a legitimate school on your own, like actual college. Don't let some agent tell you, well, you need to go to this acting class and because that's all kickbacks. No. This acting coach. Yep. 
Don't, don't do any of that crap. Well, I'll tell you what, we've been at this, um, I think it's been almost two hours. Oh, and, wow. Yeah, it's been very nice. It's been very fun. I've got another 10 hours worth of stories. <laughs> well, I have to be careful. One time, what, I have one of my friends, um, actual person I know, you know, I had her on for a podcast and she, she is good at talking. She can talk. And I just let her go on for four hours because she was talking and, and it was fun and I liked it and I didn't want to interrupt her. It was fun. And when I stopped it, the whatever happens in Zoom couldn't handle it and it ate the whole video. Oh no. Oh, and I still no. feel guilty. That was like like six months ago, and I still feel bad about that. I'm like, Oh, because you know it was all good stuff. It was good stuff, and it's gone. It's just lost, and I still oh, feel bad. I feel for you. We actually shot um we shot a really good episode of Bonanza. We've uh -huh. got a five-parter on Bonanza old tv uh -huh. show uh -huh. and we had all the actors in and at the very end of the shoot one of my cameras says you know that main camera is kind of dark i said really so i go over and look and sure enough it was dark it was our main master shot oh no and i wonder why it's dark and i get it home and it wasn't only dark on there it was you could not use it at isn't all. that painful so we, and we couldn't make, I couldn't use that entire program because I had the guys close up from the side talking. Yeah. But it just doesn't work without the master shot. You, you need the head on shot or else they're just like, yeah, it's like why is everybody talking that way? <laughs> anyway, it's been wonderful talking with you. I hope we can do it again. And I'm honored to have me on here. Uh, one last thing if somebody wants to watch your stuff, how would they watch it? The easiest way to watch it right now would be on, go on to Roku mm -hmm. and in the channel search, type in INC, Independent Network Channel, mm -hmm. or you can do Draw TV, Draw Western TV, mm -hmm. or you can do INC Horror, Independent Network Channel Horror, okay. INC Horror Extreme, okay, Rabbit Ears TV. Mm, <laughs> I can right. keep going. Blue Mermaid TV. Keep going. People Grindhouse need to see it. Grindhouse Grit TV. Grindhouse Grit is uh, actually a private channel now because it's got Grindhouse movies on it. But okay. if you search it, you can find the little access code and just get it on Roku. These are all free channels. Okay. Uh, 10 TV, T-E-N TV. Okay. Um, and I think that covered, nope, INC Family TV. Okay. And I believe that's got most of it. <laughs> all right. And, and most of our movies are on there somewhere along with, I think, in, I think INC, the Independent Network Channel, has huh? 1,200 movies on it. And wow. Wow. But we also have a lot of independent features. You got a lot of TV shows you can't get anywhere else. Uh, a lot of a lot of blogs. A lot of uh, um, independently shot. Like we have Disaster Piece Theater right now, which is a paranormal show that you can't get anywhere else. You can watch it here. Um, we've got a wonderful guy, Scott Paulson, who does a thing called Chop Block TV. A lot of the Chop Block TV shows are on our shows. You know, I have a friend who loves horror. She's going to love this. She oh, loves it's only INC Independent Network Channel. INC Horror. INC Horror Extreme. There's two of them. She'll love that. Her name is Arlene, and she'll love it. Oh, well, we got some good stuff. We got some shows that you can't... Like I said, you know, um, um, a lot of Halloween channels, we have a Halloween vault during the season, so it's not right now, but a lot of these channels, they will have, like, the one-hour um, screen where you can play it on the walls and stuff. And they charge like $39 for like a five or 10 minute loop of this. Okay. We've got 12 hours worth of those programs. 
we got haunted schools, we got haunted houses, we got haunted, and you just turn your TV on. We got one called the haunted TV set. So you turn your TV on and it looks just like you're watching a regular TV and all of a sudden things will kind of come through the set. Okay. And you can't get that anywhere but our channel. All right. Well, I will make sure to note that predominantly when I do the notes. And I'll probably have this edited within a week or so. Sounds wonderful. It's really exciting. And I'll let, um, because I'm Twitter friends with ZP International, the company. Awesome. And I'll post when it's ready and um, you'll be able to see it and share it. And let me know if you need any promo material. I won't see you if you use it. I'll let, um, yeah, anything you can send me if you want to let ZP International know. They can send me whatever they want. That would be awesome. I'll have him do it for us. All right. Thank you. Well, you, it was wonderful talking to you. Oh, thank you. I've had a blast. All you right, have a awesome. good night. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye, Georgie. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye.